This edition of the ER is brought to you by HSBC, winner of Trade Finance America's 2016 Company Award for Best Supply Chain Finance Bank in North America. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today I'm in Washington, D.C. with our panel, including FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Also joining us is Laura Jakes, deputy managing editor of FP News. Finally, we have a new guest to the show, Hisham Malam, the Washington bureau chief of Al-Arabiya and correspondent for An-Nahar, the leading Lebanese daily. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So guys, I was kind of thinking about the next few months, and I was thinking, what are the foreign policy stories that are going to dominate the election cycle in the United States? And then as I read the newspaper, here's what I see. A seeming meltdown starting in Iraq. A peace process coming off the rails in Syria. These stories haven't gone away, but it looks like we could be in for the worst of what has happened in those countries in the months ahead. And that's saying something considering how bad it's been uh, over the course of the past couple of years. Hisham, am I too gloomy? Absolutely not. Um, nowadays, you cannot escape but being so- or sound like a Cassandra. Uh, things have been um, going south in Iraq and Syria for many years. I never believed that uh, Iraq uh, can be restored um, with the same um, uh, set of actors in Iraq. Uh, we've seen recently the vice president going to Baghdad. Uh, he had held talks with Abadi and other Iraqi leaders, and then he left, and then all hell broke loose. You had Muqtada Sadr occupying the parliament. There is a tremendous frustration in the country because of the, dis- uh, the dysfunction in Baghdad, the security situation, the deepening sectarian conflict, the incredibly suffocating role of Iran. In fact, I don't know if you noticed this, but when those people occupied the parliament, they were chanting anti-Iranian slogans. Qasimi out, Iran out, we are followers of Sadr. We've never seen anything like this. And then you have all these preparations, so to speak, about the liberation of Mosul. But many people in the military here in Washington and in Baghdad, American military, are not really sure that the Iraqi military will be ready in the next few months while President Obama is in office. The president would like to decapitate the leadership of ISIS, both in Raqqa in Syria and in Mosul. I don't think he will have that chance, given the the meltdown that you talked about, both in Syria and in Iraq. I expect gloomy days. I expect more bloodshed in Syria, and I expect more bloodshed in Iraq. Okay, so Corey, listening to Hisham, who knows everything about these kind of things, um, He's described a situation in which there's a capital city frozen by dysfunction, run by a corrupt elite with growing Iranian influence. Where do you think I'm going with this? I think you are about to describe our country's capital, David. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> well, maybe I did and maybe I didn't. Or most capitals in the world, you... frankly, but most capitals in the world, frankly, but you know, who's counting? Um, you agree with Hisham's take on this? 
I think Hisham is much too optimistic about <laughs> what we are about to see. And let me just cite as my source uh, Jim Mattis, my Hoover colleague, who thinks we have Explain not— Explain who he is for the two or three of our listeners who don't know. He's a Marine who has who spent 42 years in the Marine Corps— fighting in and around the Middle East um, and was the CENTCOM commander before he retired. Uh, he and I ran a project on civil-military relations at Stanford, and he told me a week ago that things are about to get bad in Iraq and Syria. Laura, you were the Baghdad bureau chief of the Associated Press when things were pretty bad. When somebody like Jim Mattis says things are about to get bad— what does that really mean? Well, with all respect to Mad Dog Mattis, yes, I was in Iraq from 2009 to 2012. It was the first year after the American troops had withdrawn. Since that time, I have been constantly in fear that things were going to devolve in Iraq. So this does not surprise me. Um, I have long felt that people have paid way more attention to Syria than they have to Iraq. I understand the level of bloodshed that's happening in Syria. I understand that there is, you know, a corrupt and um, deadly person running Syria's government. But Iraq is a place where the United States has invested so much time, so much money, and so much bloodshed for it to really be put on the back burner as it has been, in my opinion, for the last couple of years. Now, having said that, having observed Iraqi politics up close and personal for a period of time, even though my information and my immediate uh, experience is a little bit dated at this point, I do think that Iraq is one of these places where crises very often, not all the time, as in the darkest days of the war, but very often creep up to the edge of um, hysteria and chaos without completely falling off. We saw this in 2010, for example, when um, Iman Alawi won more seats in the parliament in Baghdad than uh, Nouri al-Maliki, and yet Maliki was able to create the coalition and not Alawi. One could say that was when the turning point started to go south in Iraq, when the United States um, seemed to say, well, you know, even though Maliki did not win a quote-unquote democratic election. Uh, we're going to not object and we're not going to kick up a mess and let him become the prime minister anyway. And of course, as soon as the troops withdrew in 2011, we saw Maliki go after Sunni leaders in Iraq. And that is what precipitated the, the, the fuel, the, the fire of Sunnis and gave rise to the Islamic State. So I do think that what we're seeing right now, although it is very, very gloomy and Iraq is going to be a very gloomy place for a long time, I think that Muqtada al-Sadr may not have the support among Shia among the Shia establishment, which is to say, most importantly, Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, to carry out this kind of revolution. Um, I think that we will see the Majoria in Najaf uh, pull back um, and try to calm Shia and to not let this bubble over into some kind of intra-Shia fight that could truly rip the country apart. We have not yet seen that. A body did survive this latest um, mess over the weekend. Um, and I suspect that he will hold on to power for some time. 
But that's not going to solve the problem. I think when you talked about the military withdrawal, there was a political withdrawal, which was more dangerous. The president should have fought for a residual force. And there are ways, I mean, he could have found a way to maintain a residual American force there that would remind everybody of American sacrifices, of the investment, political, strategic, and otherwise in Iraq. And the president should have been involved himself. The president uh, subcontracted Iraq to Joe Biden. And you cannot do that at that well, part of the world. Joe Biden went, and a day later, all hell broke loose. Is there a relationship between those two things? I, I mean, there are people in Iraq who remember that this was the same Joe Biden that talked about dividing Iraq and and, 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 and all of that. I think there will be an interesting, uh, you know, within the, the Shia community, uh, uh, more ferment and probably uh, violence uh, because of Iran's heavy-handedness in, in Iraq. Today, you had... Um, people like Zalmay Khalilzad calling on the United States to to negotiate with Iran. Is this the same Zalmay Khalilzad who introduced Donald Trump? Absolutely, yes, yeah, exactly. Just... All right. So, so, so what you have here is Zalmay Khalilzad calling on the United States to negotiate with Iran the future of Iraq. So, after all, after thirteen years of involvement in Iraq, incredible investment. Hundreds of thousands probably died and wounded in Iraq, 5,000 American casualties, 33,000 wounded, all that tremendous investment. And now Iran and not the United States is the outside party that is setting, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the dynamics of Iraq. This is the punchline. OK, this is the punchline of the Obama era. We can, you know, celebrate Obamacare if you want or we can celebrate domestic policies. But when you look at his foreign policy, you have to look at Iraq and Syria. And when you look at Iraq and Syria, the only conclusion that you can come to is that Barack Obama, in his enthusiasm for pulling out of the region, felt it was in the interest of the United States to let Iran take over and fill the void. Is that an overstatement, Corey? I don't think it is an overstatement. I am um, the argument that you just made. Uh, I had made to me in Israel in 2008, and and I thought it was a crazy prospect that that could be the actual outcome, that we would care so little about the strategic consequences, about the sunk costs of lives and treasure and effort, or about the moral responsibility we should feel to Iraqis, given that we set this process in motion, for this to be the outcome. Um, but this is the outcome, which is uh, Iraq less stable than than at any time since 2003. Um, Iraq riven with sectarian conflict, where the sectarian conflict was, in my judgment, maybe 30 percent of the initial conflict. But the the use of sectarianism for political purposes by Iran and by others has has made the problem, I think, so much bloodier and more painful for Iraqis. And I'm not surprised at all that Joe Biden showing up had no effect whatever on this because we now have no credibility in talking about the government because we have taken no responsibility. Quite contrary. I think we've thrown up our hands and said we don't want to have responsibility for this this is on you. Laura, one of the things I always admire when we do our little podcast together is that you stick very carefully to your you know, journalistic lane and you don't offer opinions on things like whether the Obama administration screwed up or not. 
So what I'd like you to do is to now say, <laughs> no, no, but I just, I, you know, I, I do think as somebody who's been objectively observing this, you know, one of the things one has to weigh is, you know, in the U.S. we're narcissistic. We talk about Washington all the time and, you know, maybe Washington couldn't have made much of a difference. You were there. You've been following this. Is this a fair critique or in your view is the responsibility – you know, 85, 90 percent on the, you know, the, the heads of the Iraqis involved or the Syrians involved and the United States really only peripheral and only in Washington would you have this discussion? Yes, to all of it. So I think history that will w- show. What? Yeah. I mean, I think almost <laughs> I'm very all of those, I think, I'm very confused. I think all of those things are true. You know, I think history will show that if the United States had left a residual force in Iraq in 2011, as Hisham noted, I mean, the number went something from 20,000 at first down to 3,500. Even 3,500 is about a brigade. It's about, by the way, what we have in Iraq now in terms of boots on the ground. If those troops had stayed there, that would have been some kind of insurance force and maybe prevented outside forces, um, external forces, uh, you know, ISIS even from rising up. Maybe that would have helped. At the and, same time, and it might have sent the message that Hisham was talking about about a commitment. Well, Whereas correct. pulling it out sends a message about a lack of commitment. So it's not just the troops; it's what the troops symbolize. Right? I, that, that's right. Now, having said that, sixty percent of Iraq's population is Shia. The leadership of Iraq's population is mostly Shia. Are we really surprised that Iran, which is the strongest Shia majority state in the world, is going to want to have some kind of influence there, especially as a direct neighbor, especially since so many of the Iraqi leaders had to flee, had to exile to Iran to be safe during Saddam Hussein's reign? I don't think this is surprising. Influence, yes, hegemony, no. That's a difference, a huge difference. The longest border with Iraq is with Iran. It's like saying the United States should not have influence in Mexico. I, I fully agree with you. But we're talking about hegemony. We're talking about belligerence. We're talking about a country that's trying to set the course for the future of Iraq with our blessing, our disengagement. They are doing the same thing in Syria. They are doing, trying to, and they've done that in, in the country where I was born, in Lebanon. And now they are getting involved in Yemen. Um, um, I have a tremendous respect for Persian culture and Persian history. This is really the China of the Middle East. It's a very serious country, as Zbigniew Brzezinski keeps reminding us. But after what we've went through, after what the Iraqis went through, after the invasion, and there is an American role here. I, look, I'm one of those Arabs who would tell you whether you ask me or not, the Arabs are in the main responsible for their own tragic conditions. But in a place but like Syria— you walked Syria, into the studio wearing a Villanova baseball cap. And proud of it, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's my other identity. But look, <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, in Libya and in Iraq, there is an American responsibility. We broke it. I mean, uh, uh, it was Saddam who deepened the sectarian uh, division between the Shia and the Sunnis when he uh, stupidly invaded Iran. Uh, uh, but the invasion also stirred it up further. And then we codified, we codified the sectarian uh, division of, of the spoils in Baghdad, codified it, which is extremely dangerous. And then we disengaged. After all this investment, you cannot disengage at a time when Iran is running amok in the whole region. And so this it's kind is of like we went into a house, placed explosive charges all over the house, and then left and said, see what happens. And so actually one, said, we care about the people inside the house, and then we left. So, right. It was, so it was 
it was wrong and it was hypocritical. So one really important point when we are assigning relative blame for for who is at fault for what's happening in Iraq, one really important thing to remember on behalf of the people of Iraq is that in the parliamentary elections in 2010, all of the major parties felt a responsibility to run cross-sectarian slates. That's what Iraqis were asking for. And the political process, as early as 2010, provided that for them. And that's why our failure to honor the constitution the iraqi constitution's responsibility for the main vote getter to to form the government and us looking aside when maliki violated those things that's why that's so important cuz it crushes what was a nascent cross sectarian political movement by iraqis okay so we have 15 minutes left cuz you know Corey has to catch a plane and both of our listeners just aren't that important or um <laughs> five but, no Somebody tweeted five. We have five listeners now? Yes. Yeah. We have more than that. And those of you who believe all this amusing banter, you know, go screw yourself. <laughs> Hard to imagine why our, view, why our listeners feel alienated. <laughs> this edition of the ER is brought to you by HSBC. With HSBC, you have up-to-the-minute visibility and control of your global cash positions, so your business can move at the speed of opportunity. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. So in the remaining 15 minutes, I want to title this discussion, uh, I want to steal from Spike Lee, okay, who put out a movie recently called Chirac, talking about what's wrong in Chicago. And I want to have a discussion called Cyrac which is Syria and Iraq, because these problems are now, in many respects, the same problem. They're similar actors. Are you, Laura's glaring. I'm just wondering if you've just coined a new term, if this is the new AFPAC, mm-hmm. CIRAC, Cyrac. if we've just started this, right? Okay. You, heard it, you heard it here first anyway, on the ER. <laughs> but I want to talk about um, CIRAC from two perspectives. One, what's the prognosis? Failed policies in Iraq, failed policies in Syria, meltdown coming in Iraq, meltdown continuing in Syria, blending ISIS in the middle of it, Iran in the middle of it, other countries sort of dancing around it. Um, The fiction of a ceasefire in Syria having been revealed to be a, a fiction and serious implications for places like Lebanon, places like Jordan, places like Turkey. Exactly. Look for the Kurds and for the Gulf, clearly, because one of the things that happened here was Obama, in his desire to hand this thing off to Iran, felt it was okay to alienate all the other allies that we had in the region. But let's break it into two parts. What's the prognosis for Syrac? And then what do you recommend that we do, assuming for a moment that the current president only has a few months to do it and that a new president coming in is going to have to step up. Let me start with you, Corey, then I'm going to go to Hisham, then I'm going to go to Laura. Uh, So I think the prognosis is bad for Iraq and Syria. Um, I think the, the... you know, what typically happens in civil wars also happened in Syria, which is all the moderates get killed and your options become increasingly bad as the extremes gain ground. I saw a survey that had a really interesting survey that had been done of why ISIS recruits joined up. 
And it's not what what people commonly think. Like the main motivation wasn't, you know, the delight of jihad and killing Westerners. And it's not about us. <laughs> the it's about delight pro- of jihad. It's about kill. It's about protecting Sunni. That's the ma- the driving motivation. And unless we address that, we are not going to be able to create a mosaic that that does anything other than watch Syria burn. So, so what you're saying is the radical notion you're putting forth here is that if you have a bunch of Sunni Arabs and you take away the forces that they felt were really important in protecting them, they turn to less good options. And that perhaps what you might want to do as a policy is actually turn to Sunni forces that are more palatable and actually start supporting them in a vigorous way. Am I misreading you here? You read me exactly right, fearless leader. Um, I, I do think that that you're not going to get anywhere unless you actually roll your sleeves up and deal with the political problems. And not in Geneva with no Syrian participation, but actually among Syrians and among Iraqis and folding in our allies in the region. President Obama continues to perpetrate the fiction that there are no boots on the ground when, in fact, there are 5,000 or more American troops in Iraq and Syria. And the president's continued contortions trying to avoid any responsibility for this is the reason that other countries aren't going to put troops on the ground without us. We don't have to be the majority of what happens, but creating safe areas in the way we did in northern Iraq after the 1991 Iraq War so that you can make people safe, initiate a political process with the participation of the people most affected by it, grow a leadership that's a successor to the Assad regime, perhaps leave an Alawite enclave that the Russians can play footsies with. But but unless we saw help the people who are the victims of this, uh, principally Sunni. There are even Sunni who are fleeing from liberated areas into ISIS-controlled areas. That's how insecure they feel. Until we address that problem, and I believe we should address that problem, it's not going to get better. Okay, so Hisham, you're from the region. This is the prescription from somebody who like lives on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, you know, with all the like warm sunlight, palm trees, Mercedes Benzes, two million dollar garages. Um, <laughs> Is she, like, on another planet, removed from this, or does this prescription make sense to you? No, it makes sense. The current policies the current policies led us to this uh, cul-de-sac, as, as, uh, as you could say. Um, this is the dead end, and we need some radical changes. This president is not going to change his, his posture, and he can claim that there are no boots the on the ground. Posture being prone. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> supine. Uh, yeah, supine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and uh, uh, I, I think uh, if you talk to serious military people, they would tell you that it would not take more than five, seven, maybe eight thousand uh, soldiers from NATO countries with support from uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, who are committed themselves publicly to send troops to Syria to fight ISIS, which is very interesting, challenge them on this one. By the way, can okay. I throw in something sure. parenthetically? Sure. Did you see the Politico article by Mike Morrell yeah. on yes. the uh, MRI-led yeah. operation against in Al-Qaeda Yemen. in Yemen, in Yemen yes, the other day, absolutely. which was apparently enormously successful? Exactly. Absolutely. So and it is actually about. possible to it do this. It is possible, exactly. It is possible. And I think the United States should involve the, 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 the local powers there because they have, they have so, so I just want to ask you one sure. more. I don't mean to interrupt you, yeah. but so 
the Emiratis and the, 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 the Yemeni forces, there were only a couple hundred Emiratis, and these Yemeni forces went in against al-Qaeda, killed a thousand al-Qaeda, tracked down another bunch of them. Are they really free riders, like the president said? I mean, is that free riding? I was just wondering because they seem to actually be doing something. Well, a lot of Arabs. Look, I mean, Jordan played a huge, huge role in 2003 in helping the United States in, in the invasion. So they're not free riders. No, they're not free riders. And also, by the way, the, 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 the Jordanians and the UAE have the best special forces in the Arab world. And you can get the Jordanians involved and just clean up the Euphrates valleys up to Raqqa. And you can do that and then start working on what we call stabilization force of Syrians and others who will take pla- will ta- uh, will occupy these areas when we leave quickly when we leave quickly it is doable also you can help the, the Iraqis regain a control of, of Mosul the so-called caliphate made Iraq and Syria uh, a twins and you cannot separate them now and that's why you have to have a policy that would include both Syria and Iraq you have to stop the killing machine of Bashar al-Assad the, the Russians should be made to pay a price and there are ways of you know making making the Russians pay pay, pay a price Lavrov was talking today about in, uh, establishing some sort of a uh, monitoring center in, in 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 Geneva between American military and Russian military now Russia force this administration to recognize Russia as a legal partner, as a respectable partner in Syria. And, they forced and, them because the administration was doing nothing and they decided exactly. to do something. And Russia created facts on the ground and Russia is helping Assad win the war. And I'll tell you, I mean, this, this, may, this may be unorthodox. That Syrian war is not going to be a, a, a end in negotiation. It's going to end the way a la Spanish Civil War, a la American Civil War. And and you can have an enclave, you can have a decentralization and, and some sort of you know, federation or confederation, I don't know. But there has to be a radical change, and that regime should be stopped because the whole Lebanon could collapse under its under the weight of the of the refugees. Jordan could collapse. Can you imagine if Jordan collapses? What would happen to the Israelis and the Saudis and everybody? I mean Jordan is the Perfect, beautiful buffer zone for everybody. Today, the Syrian crisis is no longer a regional crisis. It's a European crisis, and and Putin is using it. And we have a Europe that is bereft of leaders, maybe with the exception of Merkel. These are serious issues. And you're talking about the next president? I don't envy the next president uh, because because the Middle East, that the, the, the new president, whether he or she, is going to be 10 times worse than the Middle East that Barack Obama inherited from, from, from George Bush. It was dysfunctional and partly broken when Obama took over. Now it is melting down. It is unraveling. And it's unraveling one century after the current situation, the current, current political uh, order uh, emerged from, from the cauldron of the First World War. Now Sykes, it's collapsing. Sykes-Picot. Sykes-Picot and other, and other agreements, yeah, the Paris Agreement and all, all, all of that. So a century later now, the same massacres against the same people, the Assyrians, the Christians, and the Yazidis. It's, it's, it's happening on our watch. And, and, uh, 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 and people still look at the United States what, with all our faults and our blunders in Iraq. This country is still indispensable. The leadership of the United States in the Middle East is still indispensable. People still look up to the United States, even when they are critical uh, of, of the United States. And, uh, uh, and, and what you need is really an exercise of wise leadership. Uh, uh, you cannot disengage. This is not an option. Lara? I thought that was beautifully put, Habibi. That was fantastic. I feel like you should have a standing ovation here. No one ever calls me Habibi on our podcast. (laughs) I can't call you. People will talk. (laughs) 
So, I mean, I have a couple of thoughts, um, and I'll go to what I think the mill likes to call the self-licking ice cream cone. I mean, does political stability bring peace, or do you have to have peace in order to get to political stability? And so the problem right now is really dual-headed, and trying to figure out both of those at the same time and make gains on both of those at the same time, I think, has been to the detriment of the United States and other world powers. Um you know, I agree. This, this, the region is in meltdown. I don't think it's going to get better for generations, unfortunately, very sadly. Um, I do think you asked specifically what we need to do to try to fix this. Um, you know, as Madeleine Albright said, we've got this amazing military. What good is it? Why are we spending all this money on it if we're not going to use it? So I think that if there had been more boots on the ground, as we've talked about today, if a no-fly zone had been imposed to create a buffer zone in Syria, that would have helped a lot. Um, you know, I, I, in my time in Iraq, Newspaper editors and the public and politicians used to talk about Iraq fatigue. Everybody's tired about talking about Iraq. This is a war that's been going on at that time, five or six years. Yes, we know it's bad there. Yes, we know it's not going to get better there. We don't want to hear about it anymore. And it was such a disturbing um, thing to realize that on the other side of the world, hundreds of thousands of people are being killed and we don't want to deal with it or it's not our problem or we have other more important things to, to, to think about. And, you know, I would just implore people who listen to this, all, all 20 of them, to think about that when we think about Iraq and Syria. You know, we can all get into these kind of intellectual discussions over what if we should really get rid of Assad first. Then you have an issue of regime change. We saw how that went in Iraq, right? You got rid of Saddam and the whole country imploded. Not because, by the way, I mean, debathification didn't help very much either. We definitely played a part in that, disbanding the army, exactly. But there is a real danger in regime change when there is not a second plan in place or thinking about second or third order consequences. But we can talk about no-fly zones. We can talk about more boots on the ground. We can talk about regime change. I just ask people to remember the the hundreds of thousands of people who are being killed, whose lives are threatened every day, who don't have food, who when I was in Iraq even in 2010-11, which were kind of the glory days for the U.S. military in Iraq, it was safer than it had been in almost a decade. And yet there were still bombings every day. People didn't know if they were going to come back uh, alive after going out to the Sook to get their food. These are Iraqis, not Americans, obviously. The Americans were eating their Baskin-Robbins ice cream in their fobs. Um, not that I begrudge them that, but it was not what Iraqi people have to live with, not what Syrians are living with today. And I think that as if the United States wants to remain a world power, then there is a moral responsibility to try to wrong, to try to right some of the wrongs and the injustices and the horror that goes on in the world. Absolutely true. Also, if the United States wants to remain a moral power, and it is the only one that has the ability to lead this, then it has a moral obligation to lead it. And if the United States is responsible for some of the destabilization that's taken place, and this is a responsibility that traces back to the Bush administration and to the Obama administration. We've had administrations that understood. All it takes is a look back into the 80s and the 90s, early 90s, when even though Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, uh, George H.W. Bush left him in place during the uh, first Gulf War. 
um, simply because it was asked what will replace him and that you need a Sunni core to counterbalance the Shiites. And we gutted the Sunni core. Uh, and we then, at the same time, empowered the Iranians and the Russians while weakening the other Sunni states that might have supported that by withdrawing our support. Now, if you empower them and you weaken the other Sunni states, you also create a void into which steps groups like ISIS, which say somebody's got to do this for us, as Laura pointed out earlier. So we have created this situation. Only through international leadership can we solve it. The fallacy that it doesn't affect us has been demonstrated by the flow of refugees into Europe and the extent to which ISIS has become a threat outside of the region. And we now face another issue. What worries me is the following. Um, well, those who know me um, uh, know that I'm seldom correct. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post, which I believe had the headline, We'll Be Back. And essentially it said, someday we're going to look back at this period and we're going to look at the war that took place um, during the George H.W. Bush years as the first Gulf War. And we're going to look at the wars that took place during George W. Bush and subsequently as the second Gulf War. Uh, but I think this is taking the shape of something more like the 30 Years War. And that I think there is a possibility that I would rate almost right now listening to this conversation as a likelihood that we and others will have to be back and that there will be a third Gulf War and that sometime history will look at this as a period of 30 years or more of conflict uh, which will go on until somebody resolves to win the conflict. Uh, till somebody resolves to fight until you achieve some kind of stability, uh, and that that can't exclusively be an outside force. It must involve leadership from within the region. But it can't exclusively be a regional force because none of them are strong enough to do this. And until you recognize that, you can't get to a solution. That's what worries me, this conversation has not cheered me up. None of you will be asked back. Um, it has been far too depressing. Uh, no, I'm kidding because it has also been enormously substantive and I think one of the best of these discussions that we've had. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP... And to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.